When we think about academia and industry, we think about those two as very different things. But there's this intricate and collaborative dance between academia and industry that has greatly benefited society. Today, we're delighted to interview one of the pioneering biotech leaders, Dr. Vicky Sato, who paved the way for the current biotech industry as we know it, and to learn about her journey to mastering this dance. This episode is made possible by the Blavatnik Fellowship in Life Science Entrepreneurship at Harvard Business School. Hi, Happy New Year. Welcome to another episode of Science Rehashed. I'm Shen Ning. And I'm Mehdi Jurfi, and Happy New Year, everyone. We are looking forward to bring you the science behind recent discoveries in 2021. Stay tuned. So at Science Rehash, we're a team of passionate volunteers who want to bring new science and scientists' journey through this podcast to you. We would really appreciate your support in the form of being our patron or simply spreading the word about us to your friends. You can find more information about our Patreon account on our website, sciencerehash.com, under the Support Us tab. I think you can already tell that our guest today is an inspiration across different generations. And we're delighted to introduce Madura Lolikar. Hi, everyone. And Vichy Lo. Hey, excited to be here. Of course. Thanks for joining us today. Madura is our coordinator and staff writer and a budding scientist at MGH. Vichy is our director of business development and a MS MBA dual degree student at Harvard Business School. Together, we had the opportunity to speak with Dr. Vicky Sato. Yes, and I am very excited about our guest today. Dr. Vicky Sato is currently the chairman of Board of Directors of Denali Therapeutics and Vera Biotechnology. Where scientific boards see a lack of diversity, Dr. Sato impacted millions by holding leadership positions like the chairman, senior vice president of research and development, chief scientific officer at numerous public and private companies, including Biogen and Vertex. She has turned basic science of discovery from academic labs to the science of solutions in several companies. On the same lines, um, I think I should mention that some of my experiences uh, recently have opened my mind towards why science need more academia industry collaboration so they can learn from each other and make an impact on patients' lives earlier. So far in my academic training, I've found very little information about how the science I do is actually going to be translated. So recently, I've you know, really started learning more about this and participating in various programs to learn about this. And I started really appreciating how much teamwork is required and the rigor the science must go through to be a potential product in industry. And undeniably, COVID-19 has really opened my eyes to this. And it's a really great example of how these collaborations can tremendously benefit society. Totally. You know, organizations are realizing more and more that such partnerships are important in accelerating the commercialization of innovative ideas. Luckily for us, our sponsor for this episode, the Blavatnik Fellowship in Life Science Entrepreneurship at Harvard Business School, started doing this work eight years ago under the direction of our current guest, Vicky Sato, who served as the program's founding faculty chair. This 12-month salaried program offers young entrepreneurs a bunch of resources, including operating funds, access to experts, 
and a community of mentors as they launch their ventures and hone leadership skills. To date, Blavatnik Fellows have started 23 companies and collectively raised more than $370 million in funding. From now until February 12th, HBS alumni and Harvard-affiliated postdocs can apply to be in the eighth cohort. For more information, please go to hbs.edu slash Blavatnik. B-L-A-V-A-T-N-I-K. That is fantastic. And this is why I'm excited to meet Dr. Sato who is a role model for commercialization of science. While researching for her, I realized that she carved a career path for herself. She took so many risks with respect to transitioning from academia to industry to managing life science businesses. And she has also mentored many future business leaders. And after learning about her, um, I was really inspired. Since I'm at an inflection point in my career where I'm thinking of ways uh, to combine basic science with public health to have broader impact on patients' lives. And I hope that our listeners who are at the brink of transforming and taking a leap in their careers also get inspired as I am by Dr. Vicky Sato. Well, thank you, Vicky, uh, for joining us today. We're super excited to have you on Science Rehash. Would you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and your career journey? Uh, so my name is Vicky Sato. I'm now officially in a semi-retired situation. I'm Japanese-American by, by background, grew up in Chicago and went to the public school system in Chicago and then came to what was then Radcliffe to go to college and majored in, majored in biology. Like uh, many people of my background, I think the, uh, there was a big push to, to go into the sciences. And so I was pre-med for a, lot of part of, a large part of my college career but discovered research um, as I was a second year student, I guess, had a really inspiring biology teacher at uh, Radcliffe Harvard and decided at the last minute in my senior year to, um, to apply to grad school instead of med school. So I got a PhD in, in biology. And in those days, uh, when we're talking 1970s, early 1970s, um, there were no careers aside from academic careers in, in Biology. With a PhD in biology, the career was pretty specifically focused on an academic on an academic path because, in a certain sense, applied biology was medicine. So, I committed early. I default, I suppose, to an academic career. So, I, I did a couple of. I got my degree at Harvard, my PhD at Harvard. Went to Berkeley to do my first postdoc there in physical chemistry. And then switched fields and did a second postdoc, which today is pretty common, but in those days was, was not. Because I decided I wanted to switch out of studying the light reactions of photosynthesis, which was the biophysics of my, of my thesis, to studying immunology. Because I'd always been, I hadn't really abandoned my interest in medicine, although I had abandoned my desire to go to medical school. So I switched and did a second postdoc at Stanford Medical School in, in the area of immunology. And came back to Harvard as a junior faculty person. So I then spent the next eight years at Harvard in the biology department um, running a lab, just doing, doing the academic thing. I wrote R01 grants. I got some. I didn't get others. I had grad students. I had postdocs. I had some great undergraduates in the lab. I taught. It, and I had a really good time. Unlike what people warn me about, things like you won't get any grad students because you're a junior faculty member, you won't, none of the senior faculty will talk to you because, you know, you're lower than low. None of that was true. I had really great grad students. I just was 
doing my science. And I wasn't even thinking very, in retrospect, I wasn't thinking very strategically about building an academic career either because I was pursuing what I, what I liked. I mean, there are problems in immunology that really interested me. I built my lab around that. Uh, no one said to me until much later in a funny conversation I had with a colleague, uh, well, you know, the, the system that you're working on, which was the development of the immune system, it, these experiments, you know, the experiments are two weeks long. So, you know, this is, did you ever think about this as you were thinking about how many papers you had to publish when you were academic? <laughs> and I went, no, I just, I just thought the development of the immune system was a really interesting problem. Um, it fit with my training. And so I was doing curiosity driven, uh, the realization dawned later that, that there might've been better career planning uh, involved in managing even a straight academic career. Uh, but, but it worked yeah. out for you. <laughs> oh, yeah, I was going to say, well, it wasn't so much the issue. You know, I got some papers published and I got grants and life was not life was not bad. Um, so I, I actually had a very fulfilling time. I think what changed for me was that near the near my seventh year, um, Wally Gilbert, who some of you may know, won the Nobel Prize for, for DNA sequencing. Wally and I were teaching immunology together, undergraduate immunology. And we shared the lectures, life was great. Um, it was really a learning experience for me as a teacher as well. But then he got involved in starting what has become Biogen. And, and I tell the story often that all of a sudden we went from being equal lecture partners to Wally calling me up and saying, uh, I'm in London, I'm raising $10 million from blah, blah, blah to, you know, for the next round of funding for the company. And I'm going, what is this? This, you know, Wally's the quintessential academic scientist. If he's interested in the industrialization of biology, there must, maybe I should learn something about it. And so it was that, Mark Patashny, uh, who was working on lambda repressor all of his life and started Genetics Institute with Paul Mariannis. So it was, a, it was an unusual time when really died in the wool top of their field academic scientists were looking outside of the halls of academe and saying, gee, this new science we've created actually can not only push the boundaries of knowledge, but it can actually lead to synthetic problems. But biology suddenly became a synthetic science, not just an observational science. And uh, we could solve problems with this. It was, a new, it was a new thought. So my curiosity and my colleagues got me interested in just wanting to explore that. Mm -hmm. I, while I really enjoyed being an academic, I realized at the age of 30-something that, um, that the rhythm of my life wasn't really going to change, right? I mean, I had a lab. I'd get some grants. I wouldn't get others. I'd publish some papers. You no, know, I'd be fighting with editors on the other hand. I'd have grad students and postdocs, they come, they go. Some would be great, some would be less great, but that the rhythm of my life wasn't really going to change for the next, I don't know, 35 or 40 years. And I was kind of a shocker of a thought, which was like, is this it? This, this is, it. I didn't dislike it, but the, I didn't know whether I, I didn't know whether I was going to, I don't know. 
Yeah, I'm curious. So when you first um, were approached regarding these, uh, the commercialization of biotech, what were your thoughts? Like, you know, were you thinking, oh, these people are crazy? What, you know, how are we going to commercialize biology? What kind of, what are kind of the current, um, the trends at the time? Because now it's, it's very different. And so how, how did you, you know, either you shift or how did the mentality of the general uh, community shift? Well, I think that the, the mentality of the community was was shifting and, and shifting with a kind of wild, unfettered enthusiasm of pioneers in any field where you're not thinking about the limitations of the technology, you're thinking first about the potential. So, um, so Wally's lab was working on cloning insulin, human insulin, because diabetes had been treated successfully for years, but with porcine and bovine insulins, which ultimately raised antibodies from people that are treated. So Wally's lab committed to express high levels of the human gene in bacteria so that there would be a human source of insulin for a therapy, which a priori felt like an, an advance. Um, other groups were, were looking at similar problems, which is to say using recombinant DNA technology as a way to manufacture human proteins that otherwise couldn't be manufactured in large quantities. But that was one set of problems. Then there was the doesn't have to do with biology and medicine at all. It has to do with much bigger problems. So there was a group at MIT that, that um, Professor Danny Wang, they were looking at bioremediation. Can you actually create bacteria that would clean up oil spills? Mm-hmm. Could you make bacteria that, were, that, that could secrete unusual um, fungicides or, or other antiparasitic um, molecules that could be used in agriculture? Could you make plants resistant to, um, to, to pathogens? So there was this whole um, kind of what I call the season of brainstorming where the breadth of this new ability to stick genes from one species into another species and produce it in unfettered quantities, more or less, was just limited the boundaries were limited by your imagination as a scientist. So that so that was changing, right? So so people were no longer thinking, well that, you know, how does you know how do genes get regulated? Um, you know, why how, how do we make mutants in Drosophila to really understand complex developmental processes processes? There was a whole new set of thinking around what can we do with this this thing that we this, this technology that we created that can in a, in a melodramatic way, can solve problems. Mm-hmm. So, and, and that that surprised me, but that interested me. I always sort of viewed myself as a, a hard, a scholar, you know, someone who was interested in, in studying because learning is has always been really important to me and pushing back the boundaries of knowledge was really important to me and a part of what's exciting about science, right? It, it doesn't happen often, but every now and then when an experiment actually works, you know that you're the only person in the world at that moment who actually understands something that nobody else understands. And that doesn't happen often, but when it does, it's it's pretty cool. So that was the driver for my pursuit of science. And so this idea that I could use science to actually do medicine. I mean, maybe it was that, you know, the, the path not taken thing, coming back and saying, well, I can't treat patients. I'm not sure I want to treat patients, but maybe I could do something else that would be more directly directly effective for people who are sick. Mm-hmm. And part of my interest in immunology was driven by that 
impulse, which is the immune system is the thing that protects you from stuff on the outside that wants to make an attack. And also is the stuff that can cause problems with stuff on the inside that are on the attack. So, so medicine, I never strayed too far from, from medicine. And this idea that I could think about making a medicine was pretty interesting. So I took the sabbatical year and helped start a company. But this is the first time during that sabbatical when I talked to lawyers and business people and investment bankers. And I'd written all these people off as, you know, when I, when I as an arrogant scientist, but they were there really smart. They know what they're doing. And it was really exciting to meet them um, to try to build something. So it sounds like uh, you were exploring new path for your career. And you were trying to understand the field that was constantly changing around you. And you are testing your interest in the realms of life science businesses. So you are getting out of your comfort zone and thinking both about basic science as well as applied science at the same time. And right now it seems quite feasible because of the role models like you exist and the face of uh, biotech industries have changed, but not at your time in early 70s. So what convinced you to take this leap and then stay in industry for years? You're right. Back in the early 80s, late 70s, you didn't leave academia and go into industry and biology. That was, you know, that, that's what the, the B-minus people did. So um, it, it wasn't something that you did without concern about the cost of one's career. I mean, and the couple of people who were leaving were doing... Um, you know, were not necessarily leaving their academic jobs. They were starting companies but keeping their academic jobs. A couple of people like um, um, like Richard Flavel, now you know, continuing to be a famous scientist, left his left his very famous scientist position and came to be the CSO at, at Biogen. Or Julian Davies also, but they were incredibly well established in their field. So if they changed their mind, there was no question that they could go back and you know be equally famous and successful. But but for someone at my stage, um, hardly world famous in anything, to say, I'm really going to leave this and try to do this other thing full time, was, it was a significant risk. And that did concern me because I felt like if, if, if I lost credibility with my peer group, the credibility that I fought so hard to get through years of postdocing and years of being a junior faculty member, then, well, then what was I going to do? Right. So, what, what if this is like, you know, this is like, some kind of midlife crisis and, you know, I'll, you know <laughs> it's just like a bad idea. <laughs> so I did the mental calculus that said, I probably could leave academia for a couple of years, experiment in this new field. And if I was terrible at it, or if I hated it, then I could probably go back to academia in some kind of lateral position. So, but that if I stayed out for more than two years, was this completely arbitrary analysis that I did? then it was going to be a lot harder. So that's why I took the sabbatical, because that was one year in which there was very little risk in doing that. And then it became pretty clear to me that while this startup that I was doing, which was a huge learning experience, wasn't necessarily a company of my lifetime, I really liked dealing with my science in in a framework that was much more real world. And I didn't know how I'd feel about that. I didn't know whether I'd feel... Like this is like I failed in some way uh, or that I was giving up or whatever. But it just, it turns out that 
what I love about science, what I still love about science, is the diversity of science. And I'm not one of those people who, who wants to study a thing or has the, the ability to study a thing for 30 years. I actually like different problems. So I got to think about science across a much broader array than I ever thought would be possible. And I also like working with people. I got to, I got to collaborate with people in, you know, that did very different things than I did. It was, we had a common goal. The enemy was external, not internal. You know, it was just, so for all those reasons, I, I figured out pretty quickly that um, I liked the environment, A. And B, and maybe this is really A, the quality of the science that was being done and that I could do was as demanding, if not more demanding, than the science I was doing in academia. Because there is this belief as well, you know, industry science is easy, right? It's really easy. It's, it's easy. Uh, I was going to say it's like engineering, which makes the assumption that engineering is easy, which it's not. <laughs> but this idea that, you know, you could do it, let's face it, uh, we've all published papers where you've done a few experiments, you pick the best looking ones, um, you, you write your paper, and then you explain in the abstract in the summary about someday this might have a great impact on diabetes or whatever, but you know, it's a long way. I mean, in industry, suddenly, if your experiment, if your methodology isn't robust enough to actually create something under conditions where you'd be willing to take it yourself or you know, give it to somebody you love, it, it's you know, four out of five times not good enough. I mean, we're reading about all this vaccine stuff now. You know, no experiments are perfect. But the robustness of the science that you have to do and the kinds of problems you have to solve in science are every bit as challenging. And I think it's almost more challenging. They just have a different purpose, right? So, uh, like I said, there's, there's science for the advancement of knowledge where you put data out there and then scientists debate about it. That's what you're supposed to do. And other people will try to re reproduce your results and you'll try to reproduce your results. But it's, it's a discussion about whether this new fact is a fact, the way this new fact is a perspective on a fact, it's the, and, and your colleagues help build on it. And there's a discussion and, you know, this, this is the, the, the fertile aspect of, of knowledge-driven curiosity-driven science. In industry, it's much, you know, it's like, does it work? And does it work well enough for people to actually pay you for it? Which is an interesting moral question. Uh, it's in, in academia, it's always sort of a game. Can I convince the government to pay me to this? <laughs> it's a much more deliberate equation. I'm making a medicine. I, uh, um, uh, one of the most important projects I worked on in industry early in my career was HIV. You know, um, this is a moral obligation to do science at a level that makes a difference because people are literally dying in front of your eyes. Yeah, there's a so, lot more at stake, right? Do you feel that pressure more? Because you know that if something went wrong, if you made a mistake, it could actually lead to side effect. It never goes away, right? It, I think for all the years that I was running R&D at Vertex, there was not a, um, a night that I went to, to bed where the realization that we had hundreds of patients on clinical trials with an experimental drug didn't weigh on me or that tomorrow some new patient was going to be the first person on the planet to take a molecule that some chemist had made in our labs. I love the immediacy of what industry is, a, is about. I, I, I like using science to solve, to really solve problems. And, and the, the highs that come from making a medicine that actually 
has an impact that hasn't been seen before. It, it, it's, it is, for, for me, it's both personal and profound. I love the, interdis- the truly interdisciplinary nature of making that science work and of the even more inter- interdisciplinary nature of making that science work within the creation of work, work within a business enterprise because the business of the enterprise is in the end to make money. So you kind of can't just say, you know, I, I don't want to worry about that. You, you do it. You have to worry about building the business and you have to worry about how you're going to build that business using the best science that you can. So that still fires me up every single day. And that's what fires me up on the boards of the companies that I, um, that, that I work with. That's amazing. So it sounds like taking risks and being open about the changes in the field really worked out for you. So at Science Rehash, we're a team of passionate volunteers who want to bring new science and scientists' journey through this podcast to you. We would really appreciate your support in the form of being our patron or simply spreading the word about us to your friends. You can find more information about our Patreon account on our website, sciencerehash.com, under the Support Us tab. Vicky. After making a significant impact through various industries for about two decades, you returned to Harvard University to be a professor of business management and molecular and cellular biology. What was the motivation behind this? I came back to um, academia maybe because um, it was in 2005 and Vertex had just seen the first data from our Hep C drug. Um, we had started our cystic fibrosis program. But um, the pharma and biotech industries were now being ranked right alongside tobacco companies in the mm-hmm. eyes of the public. And the days of Merck being valued as the most valuable company in the world by readers of Time and Newsweek were, were long gone. And this was, this was making me crazy because the people in these companies are incredibly passionate about the work that they, about the work they do. They're incredibly committed to doing good doing good science, but doing, doing good in the world. Mm-hmm. And it, it just like was really making me crazy that the industry was being viewed the way it was. And, and we deserve some of it, right? We, sure. there, there's, still, there's things that we're, we're not doing as well as we could, and that needs rethinking. So my thought was that if the industry is in this bad shape, how would you get young people like you guys to come and work in the industry. Who wants to go work for, you know, Philip Morris? Nobody wants to go work with Philip Morris. Nobody wanted to work with Dow Chemical. Um, so I thought, well, in some ridiculously naive way, I'll go, if I go back and teach, maybe, you know, teach some young people, I can get some of them to, to understand that doing science in this environment is every bit as challenging and rewarding as doing science in academia. And maybe I could, you know, the, the thought about, Teaching at the business school was just crazy. That just came out of left field. But we need new business models too. So there was, I don't know, something like 1% of Harvard Business School graduates had, you know, could even spell healthcare. Everybody was going off to be a, an investment banker or a consultant. And when the dean at HBS called and asked me if I'd be interested in the faculty position, I told him it was crazy. But he said, no, they really wanted to start getting HBS more involved in thinking about science-driven businesses. And that sounded like kind of a, an Everest of a project. So I said, yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, why not? Um, but it was really that. It's really 
And I think one of the best moments of my post-industrial life was when one of my undergraduates spent um, the summer uh, on an internship at the FDA. And he wrote to me, he said, here I am, I'm at the FDA, and I've just got asked to actually participate in the review of an drug application and to listen in on the hearings. And he said, nobody at my level gets to do that. Nobody gets to do that. And the only reason is that I'm convinced the only reason I get to do this is because the stuff that I learned in your course made me sound half intelligent. <laughs> and, and he said, he just, he would never have thought about doing anything at the FDA. That's awesome. That's awesome. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed with your career journey for two things. The first thing is you're moving from plant biology to human biology and then to immunology. This is not easy. And the second thing, on like late 70s, you take this faculty job at Harvard, where at that time, people or your colleague, professional colleague, consider this is a job killer. There are, there are few junior faculty that would get tenured at that time. And as you mentioned, there were few women. Your, your, your academic so. journey reminds me of, of Bob Langer, who was educated as a chemical engineer at MIT at that time. And most of the chemical engineers looking for the oil companies and industries. And then he got this uh, offer from a lab at MGH for drug delivery. And then Bob Langer became the Bob Langer that we know today, one of the pioneers in the field of uh, the drug delivery and pioneers of a lot of uh, startups. This is great. The, 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 so sometimes we think that the likelihood that someone can climb the ladder successfully is very tiny because they are not focused or they shifting gears from one, one discipline to another discipline is kind of wrong. Well, you know, I think um, it's always this delicate balance between people telling you you need to be focused and people telling you you need to take risks. And so I think finding finding your internal tolerance and your internal judgment about when it's time to take a risk and when it's time to dig deep is one of the skills I think one one needs to do, one needs to develop. One of the big questions for me, like for someone who does actually want to transition from academia to industry, what did you find to be some of the necessary skills that you had to develop out of academia as you transitioned? I think um, two, two of them, um, one of them, which you will relate to because they teach you this, yes, it's to think strategically about your career, right? Which is think about what's the kind of job that you want and the path to get it as opposed to what I was doing was kind of rolling along. Well, yeah, I'll get my PhD, I'll go do a postdoc, I'll do a faculty, you know, you just, you're just sort of on this track, like a bowling ball. Um, and, you know, I do hit a strike and you fall into the gutter, but you're on, but that's the track that, that's the track that you're on. I think thinking much more, being much more in control of what it is that, what do I want to do, ideally, what are, or what's the set of things that I want to be able to choose among it? And then talking to people who are on those paths are really thinking more about what's necessary. And so I think thinking strategically about your career, as opposed to just letting it kind of move you along, is, is pretty important. This, the second, and I always say this to people, is that in business, communication skills are really essential. And communication skills are essential in academic science as well. And we see that but in science, it's kind of a double standard, right? We always a little bit make fun of or distrust or devalue people who are exceptionally good communicators. So, you know, whether it's 
Um, you know, they're just always people who you hear say, oh, well, yeah, well, he's really, he, she's really good at popularizing your science or whatever. I'm always done with a little bit of a thrill of a lip. And I don't buy that. I think communication in science is extremely important because if you want your ideas to impact others, if you don't communicate them, if you just hide the light under a bushel, it won't have the impact that you want. That's even more true in, in a multidisciplinary effort like the company where so work on work on your ability to communicate across different audiences, um, verbal communication, written communication. Um, it's that's just really important, and I I think I am still constantly learning how to do that effectively. Teaching when I was a faculty member, a young faculty member, was an important. I mean, to get up and give a lecture three times a week. Um, lecturing in the pit, it just, these things hone your communication skills, but I can't emphasize enough. you it's not, you can't just speak your private science language to the people who are fluent in it. You've got to speak a language that is uh, effective to different audiences. So that's just another, I think, key, key skill. I don't think it's highlighted as much as it should be. Um, partly for this double standard reason, partly because the emphasis on just just get the data, right? It's the old, the data will speak for itself. Data rarely speaks for itself. The data benefits a lot from a good, you know, from an effective, an, an effective in, in, interpreter. So I just don't, I don't think in our scientific training of academic scientists, we emphasize it enough. Um, I, I was lucky that I had some mentors who were brutal, who were brutal about reviewing my manuscript for publication. Um, every dangling participle, every split infinitive they would yell at me about. Um, and the same thing about making me rehearse talks at, at conferences. And so I, I had really good mentors. And I think as mentors, that's something in science, in any sphere, we should be working on more deliberately than we do to train the next generation to be articulate and organized and deliberate. Yeah, that's a great advice. It was really important to emphasize that we need to strategically plan our career moves rather than blindly following the created paths. So you are trained as an academic scientist, but you do not have any formal training in business. So how was that process of transformation from academia to business? I'm sure you had to learn a lot of skills. There, there's always that moment and people ask me now, should I go to business school? And there are lots of, there are lots of different answers to so that depends on, on the individual. I, I was too late in my career to think about going to business school, but there were, I did take some workshops. I did go to this one, this uh, Sloan program for people who are already executives, but you know, who were scientists or who were lawyers or who were trained in other skills, not, not management. Um, I, and that gave me some vocabulary, I suppose, and, and kind of a quasi-credential. I think the most important thing, the most important skill that I had to learn, again, coming back to academic science was how to manage people. I mean, you can, you can learn how to read a financial statement. I still don't read them well, but, you know, enough to get the gist. But managing people is essential. It's essential to running an academic lab, but people don't train you for that either. But if you're going to, to take any kind of leadership role in a company, you, you need to really develop the ability to set objectives, learn how to motivate people, learn how to give good feedback, learn how to resolve conflict. 
Um, so those are some of the hardest lessons for me to learn. And I had to learn those on the job. And I learned them because I had bosses, basically, um, who wouldn't let me get away without learning them. And some of those lessons were pretty painful and difficult. But, um, but I, I did see pretty clearly that if you don't learn them, your ability to advance is limited. And, and I actually have to say, and this is, I'll say this is an interesting group to say this to you. Being an Asian woman was not an advantage, not an advantage, because so many of the cultural attributes that I've been um, raised with run counter to the, um, the idea of, well, not the idea, run counter to being effective in an American business. Um, and it took me, it, um, it took me um, a while to figure that out. I had some people who just told it to me straight out. Um, but mostly it took me a while to come to grips with, with that because there is this, am I forsaking my cultural heritage by, you know, by developing these, these skills? Um, so that's, that, there were a couple of long nights of the soul on, on, on that one. But I think that was, that was another maybe more personal to me thing that I had to, thing that I had to deal with. Yeah. So what was that like in terms of the challenges and how did you, you know, personally get yourself to kind of overcome them or did you say, oh, you know, gender doesn't matter. I'm just going to be a part of, uh, this group of advisory, um, team and, um, gender matters, uh, more, more, much more now than I thought it would, you know, 34 years, <laughs> 34 years into it. I think you can't ignore it. So I think you have to pay attention to it. You can't get my own view about this. Is, um, you can't let it get in the way of getting the job done. And luckily for me, I guess I've always been, of, of the things that I've decided that I wanted to do, um, whether it's a faculty position or sitting on a board, that the, the purpose, the purpose of the responsibility was exciting enough to me. And my desire to have an impact doing it was great enough that I, I it, it helped me get through the, um, what kind of impression am I creating? Am I being overlooked? I mean, there are lots of things that can cause you to second guess what you're doing. If you really are committed to what you're doing, these things tend to, this sounds stupid, but they do tend to work themselves out. You figure a way through it, which, you know, which is, which there's a shorthand that goes, look, I'm going to say this. And it's important to me that I say this because I believe in this. If they think I'm a bitch, so be it. Um, you know, when, when I was younger, it was much harder for me to get to the Soviet part. It would be like, oh, what if they think I'm a bitch? And then I wouldn't say it. Um, so, so confidence, and I think maybe more than anything else, commitment makes, makes a difference. Because at some point, what you have to contribute and the intensity of what you want to say and the intensity of what you want to do will put in perspective the risk of what other people may or may not think about. I wonder if you could share your take and insight on like, in your opinion, what is say the individual's role versus the organization's role in increasing equality and equity in science. Um, and since you've been through so much and seen so much and actually imparted change in so much, what do you think like the roles are for those three? I, I think institutions can do a lot more than, you know, the, the, the role of the institution is to create an environment that's permissive and that provides a level playing field, whatever level looks like to you, right? Because level sometimes can mean 
give a leg up to people who haven't had one or, or, or provide childcare, as I was talking at the end. Um, so I think the institution has a responsibility for creating what geneticists would call a permissive environment. You know, if you're, if you're in an environment where there's just no way it's not going to happen. And when I first started going to Japan, for example, on behalf of the company, I was the only woman in the room. I was a senior woman. These, these male executives had to talk to me. It, they could not look me in the eye. It was really difficult for them. So creating an environment where, it, where it's more permissive for people of, of identifiably different groups, that's the responsibility of the institution. And that means a, a level playing field, as I said, level can, doesn't necessarily mean flat, right? Um, I, I think it's the role, the responsibility of the individual to take some risk, to speak out when speaking is necessary, but also to understand pretty clearly what the, the rules of success are and to ask yourself, okay, if I want to succeed in this company, this is what I know about this company or this institution or whatever. Um, if I want to succeed here, do I understand what it would take on my part as an individual to succeed there? And am I okay with doing those things? As opposed to saying, um, well, I think all those things are wrong, so I'm not going to, I'm going to ignore them. You can take that attitude, but then you have to deal with the consequences. So it's kind of like coming to Harvard where there weren't any women tenured saying, well, okay, I could not go there, right? If it's going to bug the hell out of me that the chances that I'm going to get tenure are I don't know, one in 10,000, if that's going to bother me, I should go someplace else. If I go there, I go there knowing that that's the norm, being willing to operate at the best of my capacity, even given that norm, not being crushed when the expected happens. Um, but not, not giving up the fight either. I was the first, I was the grad student representative to the first committee on the status of women at Harvard. And, um, it was, you know, and it was faculty as well as students. And it was just, it was, and it was important to me that, uh, to participate like that, but it, it was also important that I, as an individual understood the realities of the situation. Um, as again, level to me is, doesn't mean that it's flat, but that the people who are without opportunity are provided with tools that bring them up to a competitive level, that kind of um, equality of, 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 of opportunity and environment, institutions can, can and should step up to that. They need to step up to that. And we need to create institutions that are better at it and that can help do that. Individuals, I think, need to take some responsibility for making the choices um, for understanding. It's kind of, you know, the old analogy is if you're going to play Monopoly, you got to play Monopoly. If you spend the entire game arguing about the rules, you're not going to win. So if you want to win, and if you don't like the rules, don't play Monopoly. Play some other game. Harsh, maybe a reflection of my age, but so I don't know. So I don't know if that's, that's, that's a personal perspective, let's put it that way. It's not the gospel. Vicky, what change do you envision for life science businesses stemming from academia and industry? Do you think that we should cultivate more interdisciplinary academia, industry collaboration, and care more about direct impact on public rather than racing for publishing in high impact journals or paying thousands of dollars for the cover of the journals? It is certain from your motivation to teach business that you want more scientists to be trained as business leaders, right? No, we, we definitely shouldn't be training people to be business leaders. I mean, pe people who want to be business leaders will sell, 
self-select. Um, um, I, I think that I would very fundamentally like us to get back to a place where science is valued in society. And right now the level of, and this isn't a over the last four years only problem, but the level of distrust between the populace and science and scientists has only been grown. And, and ironically, because we live in an increasingly science-driven world, right? science and technology-driven world. So this starts with better science education, or, um, you know, really back in first and second, second grade. Think about why you all decided to become scientists. It's something that, some, something that, that excited you when you were probably quite young, an ability to pursue your curiosity. So, so the first thing I'd like to see is just, as scientists, we all have a responsibility to make the world understand what science is and the good, of the good, the bad, and the ugly, and to help foster educational methods where people learn the, the critical thinking that comes with being a scientist. That's, so, so in a very meta sense, I think we got a lot of work to do there. Um, you know, I think that I, I'm also caught between the tension of some of the big problems we have to solve are going to get solved by big teams of people. And so whether it's an academic institute or a company that can pull together teams of people with different contributions to solve those problems, let's do it. I'm all for that. You know, we should be able to fix type 1 diabetes. We should be able to figure out neurodegenerative diseases. Probably not in my life, but we should be able to do something about that. You know, on the other <laughs> hand, I also want to make sure that we have room for the, the loneliness and the creativity of, of the individual scientists. And I worry a little bit in the, in the rush to multidisciplinary everything that we lose, it's a value system, right? If even as I worried about the value of going into, my value as a scientist that I went into industry, I think we need to worry about the, are we creating an environment where, where lone independent thinkers are, are being devalued implicitly as obligation an obligation of scientists is to push our knowledge and to create solutions. But how we go about those two things, not necessarily congruent, overlapping maybe, but not congruent. And we need, we need room for both. Okay. On to my last question. This will be a little bit away from your career and more about your hobbies. We know that you are a longtime ballet and ballroom dancing enthusiast. So Tell us a little bit about how that interest developed. Um, I've always liked dance. I started dancing when I was very little. You know, my um, I was a clumsy child, so my mother took me off to ballet class and attempted to make me somewhat less clumsy. And I just, I just really liked it. I, I wasn't particularly talented, but I really, I really liked. I liked dance. I liked moving to music. I like, I like the art form of ballet. I always have, but um, was sensible enough to know that I was not going to earn a living doing that. So, but I, but I always. I, I think except for college, when I just was too buried in college and, and all that, but when I really stopped dancing. And, and I had a college roommate who was actually a ballet dancer, and she continued to dance, and I didn't. And then sometime when I was a postdoc at Stanford, I went back to taking ballet lessons. So, and, and it's just, for, I am not an athlete. I hate, I'm incompetent at sports. Um, so... It's been both a physical outlet for me, but also a, just an artistic one, an artistic and creative one. So dance has always been important in it. And as you well mentioned, it still, it still is. It, um, and, and I like it. It's, it's a great outlet. And, and I, I love the beauty of it. And I love the challenge of it. I mean, dancing is, 
dancing is a complex thing to do. You can't do it. You have to think about it while you're doing it. You can't. I think that's always what I liked about it. I used to take ballet class every day that I was an assistant professor. But just because for that hour and a half, I could not obsess about my life. I just, if I wasn't thinking about my dancing, it wasn't going to happen. So it's, it's always been that for me, rewarding in itself and also an intense distraction. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it just takes so much. I mean, for me, it's almost meditative because um, then I don't have to think about whatever I've been stressed about just because I need to devote 100% of my attention to figuring out how to move my foot. <laughs> I've always wondered, because there's so many people into the creative arts and the sciences, how those two connect. Because, I mean, from a you know neuroscience perspective, you're using very different parts of your brain, but maybe that is not the case. Maybe you're very much, I mean, with science, you definitely have to be creative. So maybe there's kind of um, a attraction from um, that perspective for for scientists who who also do a lot of artistic and musical things. A lot of scientists do. Yes. Yeah, and and some are very seriously. Yeah, yeah. And very successful. Yeah. yeah, absolutely, awesome. And with that, we thank you for joining us today at Science Rehash and sharing such an inspirational journey with us. Thank you, Vicky. So at Science Rehash, we're a team of passionate volunteers who want to bring new science and scientists' journey through this podcast to you. We would really appreciate your support in the form of being our patron or simply spreading the word about us to your friends. You can find more information about our Patreon account on our website, sciencerehash.com, under the Support Us tab. Thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Science Rehashed. Thank you to Dr. Rudy Tenzi for providing us with the music for our intro. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can also visit our website at sciencerehash.com. We would also like to thank all the members of Science Rehash who contributed their time in making Science Rehash possible. This includes our writers, Madura Lolikar and Kara Brenner, our marketing director, Carla Diavanzo, our sound editors, Tavi Pollard, Jared Warsaw, and Sophia Nastri, our assistant, Rebecca Solison, our creative director, Emma Brand, our producer, Shuang Zhang, and our business development director, Vichy Lo. Our show is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Please subscribe and recommend our podcast to your friends and send us your comments and feedback. Thanks for listening.